And the goal is, yeah, to have more California red-legged frogs in more places. And so how do you do that? You release a bunch of tadpoles over and over again every year and hope that they grow, well, hope that they grow up. And then you hope that they start acting like natural frogs and you hope that they start finding each other and breeding on their own. And so that happened actually. So that was, um, we found our first wild egg mass in 2017. This episode is brought to you in part by our sponsor, Tidal Influence, a Californian ecological consulting firm who proudly supports environmental education and all of the diverse conservation efforts that Pelicanus works to highlight. Visit their website at tidalinfluence.com to learn more about what they do to conserve our coastal resources and how you can get involved. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Pelicanus. Pelicanus is a nonprofit organization focused on sharing the movement that is and has been happening in the conservation field. Now, this is Conservation Conversations, our long-form documentary-style show that highlights the people and organizations that are making it their purpose to grow the conservation field and to show that people have, and still are, making monumental differences in our world with intentional change. Head over to pelicanus.org to find all of our episodes and more. In this Conservation Conversation episode, we talked to Katie Delaney, a wildlife ecologist for the National Park Service out of the Santa Monica National Recreation Area in Northern Los Angeles, California. Among the many things she does, she has been in charge of the reintroduction of California red-legged frogs into their local streams. Federally threatened species listed under the Endangered Species Act, the California red-legged frog has lost most of its historical habitat throughout California and Baja. Their reintroduction into the streams of coastal California and Baja is essential to the survival of the species. I'll let Katie describe this forward-thinking conservation project and the species it aims to recover. So you said a wildlife ecologist. Uh, what what does that mean exactly? What kind of projects uh, do you work on? So the types of projects that I do um, have to do with wildlife, <laughs> and um, they are mostly conservation projects, or they're projects to sort of monitor wildlife that where the data can be used to promote conservation conservation in wildlife, um, and so that's. You know, that's the goal of the National Park Service. One of the, the mission, or it's part of the mission is to preserve um, natural resources, meaning wildlife um, and other sorts of natural resources, but wildlife is one of them uh, for, for the future. And so, so basically I, my projects really, especially, especially uh, one, of, you know, one of my projects, the red-legged frog reintroduction is definitely a really on the ground conservation conservation project. Um, but generally, generally we're sort of monitoring wildlife, um, making sure that the impacts of our urban park um, are not too detrimental on the wildlife populations. And so that sort of drives all the research questions in our park is, is the urbanization and fragmentation in the area. Um, so that's, that's a little bit more specific than a wildlife biologist working in another park that might be studying things like um, climate change or you know, reproduction, or they might be studying hunting or fishing impacts, things like that on wildlife. But um, we have different sort of stressors here in our park. So it's all urban interface type projects. Yeah, we can't help it because our park is, um, 
it's a mishmash of of all sorts of different landowners so as the national park service we have a boundary for the recreation area but we don't we only own about 15 percent of the property within the boundary so the private property and the the impacts of of urbanization so subdivisions um, commercial properties and roads are something that we concentrate on and we study how those things directly impact the animals. Yeah, so just for the sake of time, I just wanted to transition over to the yeah. California red-legged frog work. Um, and I, get, I think a good place to start is to just, uh, can you describe the species, you know, just physical characteristics, uh, where the habitat, those kinds of things? So California red-legged frogs are large. They're the largest native frog in the West. They're true ranid frogs. They're part of ranidae family. They're, they used to be widespread. So their range used to be from the Bay Area all the way down the coast into Baja. And then there were, uh, there was the distribution that went around sort of into the Eastern Sierra as well. Um, it's kind of unclear it, where they were or if they were known from the Central Valley, but, um, but we have records and everything from them with a sort of very California and Baja California distribution. They're fairly charismatic. They're good looking frogs. <laughs> they, they do have red legs, but the red is underneath their legs. So you have to be really holding one to see the red and it's usually a wash of sort of pink or red. Um, people are sort of expecting to see one of the, like a tropical species that has like bright red legs and they don't have that, but um, yeah. they, they're omnivorous. So they'll eat anything that they can fit in their mouth. Um, but most, of, but the studies that um, have been published have shown that they mostly eat terrestrial bugs and terrestrial invertebrates. They, it takes them so they're, they breed sort of down here in, in Southern California, they're breeding pretty early. So, so they breed with the rain. So they breed January, February. Um, you know, they lay egg masses. They bend their tadpoles for a long time. Their tadpoles until about now, July, August. Um, and so they have kind of a long tadpole phase, um, several months, and then they become froglets. And so they're, they're I don't know, they're maybe, they're maybe an inch long when they're froglets right, that when they were like tadpoles of the year. And then they just keep growing until they're adults and that takes about three years, two to three years. So, um, so when you see a big frog and they can, be, they can be four to five inches long from nose to butt basically. So they can be pretty large. Um, females are larger than males, which is sort of a typical amphibian thing. <laughs> and um, they're the official California state amphibian, which we didn't have one until a few years ago. Um, and I think like a third grade class or something like petitioned the governor. <laughs> they got it to be the state amphibian. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting that they, they take a federally threatened species. I guess that makes sense though. Get some more awareness around it. Yeah. I mean, and it's, it's, um, you know, it's a California species. It's not really found anywhere else except for Baja California. And, um, you know, it's rare there too. It's definitely been impacted there from um, lots of different things. But yeah, they, they, they um, it's rare down there as well. I was just thinking how much I like the term froglet. I know, isn't that <laughs> awesome? What about toadlet? Toadlet is awesome too. <laughs> toadlet, and uh, I think it's the same with owls. It's owlet. <laughs> yes, it's like the it's the best. And and any biologist who pretends that they don't like cute things like that is lying. 
I know. <laughs> it's so funny when you, when you get out of school, when you're, maybe when you're in school, people are like, oh, you, you, you know, you have to be serious. And then when you get out, all the, the serious biologists are just like, hey, it's Froglet. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so you kind of, we kind of touched on that they're uh, in, or threatened, they're in, under the endangered species list. Um, and you said they're rare in Baja. So what are the larger conservation issues of why um, the red-legged frog, I guess, why you're doing what you're doing? <laughs> or what happened? Yeah. yeah, so so that's a big question there, Austin. <laughs> um, <laughs> so what happened? Um, well, so, so, so yes, they're listed as threatened under the, the United States Endangered Species Act. Um, they they started being so they were they were once very very common in california and in southern california so we don't really know what happened to them in our area like why why they started becoming so rare um throughout their range there's been various things so throughout their range they 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 occupy a wide variety of habitats um so in our area we don't have ponds we don't have natural ponds the only natural pond habitat is vernal pools when we hardly have any of those left um and that wouldn't have been a, a, a typical habitat for them but in like um santa barbara county san luis obispo county places like that there are a bunch of cattle ponds um and re that's perfect red -legged, red legged frog habitat for them in that part of their range. We don't have that, we have streams. So for instance, in parts of Santa Barbara County and the coastal area and other parts of and a, a bunch of counties up and down the coast where there are red legged frogs, they also are stream breeding. So that's what our habitat has always been. And they, I'm, you know, they've existed for millennia and they, um, they were here in our mountains, um, in the Santa Monica mountains in, all of the major streams, um, breeding, living. We have in Southern California, or in, I guess I should just say in the Santa Monica Mountains, we have um, the stream habitat, and most of it is is kind of ephemeral, so it'll dry up. You know, we only get rain in the wintertime, it's a Mediterranean climate, so, so it'll be wet in the wintertime, that's when they're breeding, and that's when they're really tied to water, and then some of the streams will dry up. But we know that they were in places where there's fairly permanent water. So we do have some streams that flow all year round that are spring-fed, um, for example. We have other streams now that are sort of urban drool water spread. Like that's mm. that's why there's there, there's uh, water um, year-round, and, and it's probably a combination of, of spring-fed as well. So we don't know what happened in our area. So there, there's been a paper in that, that was written many years ago about maybe what happened in the Bay Area is that um, people started eating them. <laughs> they're really easy to catch and they're apparently delicious. And so people were eating them. And that, that seemed to be a big impact in like one place in the Bay Area. And I can't remember where that was, but it was one place where people were just coming um, around the turn of last century and, and finding that that was a great food source. Um, and the paper kind of concluded that um, they became rare. And then that's when people started bringing bullfrogs from the southern United States to California to eat and to farm um, because they developed taste for, for, for frog legs. Um, I don't know if all of that is all true. <laughs> I should say that. Um, but it is what's in that paper. So um, we don't think that that was what it, there was any sort of like human consumption impact in the Santa Monica Mountains. There weren't enough people here at the time. Um, although Los Angeles was definitely, you know, a big city even then. Um, so we don't really know though, 
Um, but they were in the Los Angeles River, and we know that people have lived along the Los Angeles River for a long, you know, thousands of years as well. And so, um, so they coexisted with people at a certain like level. And then we all know what happened to the LA River in the 1930s. It became totally paved over. Um, the, the urbanization just exploded, especially in the middle of last century, so in the 1940s and 50s. And so some, so that, that seemed to coincide with the decline of the red-legged frog in this area. Some of the museum samples that I have, uh, that are museum records that I know of, um, they are in the Los Angeles River. They are, there's one that's like pools on Santa Monica Boulevard, you know, there's Santa Monica Boulevard, this major road in the middle of the city and there were pools and probably farmland and, and there probably were frogs there. And so, I mean, there were, there were museum records. So once people started coming in, typically it's the same old story. Um, the habitat, habitat loss associated with that is, so that that would have totally affected the frogs. The other, but the, the other thing that doesn't explain that though, is that we still have these watersheds that are fairly pristine. Those are the watersheds where I'm reintroducing them, right? So it's not like those were, you know, the, the, the urbanization was there in the, in the 1950s and now it's gone, it wasn't. So that can't really, so urbanization and people can't really um, explain it, their loss throughout their range. So we think it's probably a combination of, it's could, it could be a combination of a few things, not more, nat, more natural-ish things like fire. So fire frequency is not natural, but fire is. Um, but it, it could have been um, exacerbated with people, but, but then droughts. And, and then we think that um, the fungus, the chytrid fungus, that's really common for amphibians and is, causes many problems around the world for amphibians, we think that that could have swept through the area at one point and um, affected those populations in the mountains um, to the point where, and maybe that's a combination with drought or fire or, or, and urbanization maybe in certain watersheds. So that's a long way to say, I don't know <laughs> why they're, why they're missing from the Santa Monica mountains, but we do know that there's chytrid fungus in the source population where we take frogs from to reintroduce them to the Santa Monica mountains. Um, but it, and we do know that chytrid can come into a population and that, that the populations can, as a collective, can sort of um, have a resistance or get an immunity to it, um, to the negative effects of it. And so they'll carry the fungus on their bodies, but it doesn't get to the point where that kills them. Mm. And um, that resistance is the basis of some people's whole, re whole conservation projects. They're trying to get po their populations to be resistant to chytrid so they can survive in some of these places. And so that may have just naturally happened in our area. Um, and we have uh, uh, not all of our amphibians, but the frogs that we've tested, they all have in lots of different areas in the Santa Monica's have all tested positive for chytrid and it all, everybody seems like it's, they're doing fine. Um, you know, they got through whatever that was, except for the red-legged frog. The red-legged frog is the only amphibian that didn't make it um, huh. and that became, so threat, you know, threatened. So throughout their range, you know, that over the last hundred years, their range really restricted. There's only a few places in Baja left where they are. Um, and there's lots of counties in California that don't have them anymore. Um, San Diego County, Orange County, no frogs. 
Riverside County, there was one place and now USGS is doing another reintroduction. So there's a little bit more, but um, that's a different story. But but yeah, so it was really Los Angeles County and, and the frogs that we were working on was the southernmost population of red-legged frogs in the United States. Um, it's not now because of the other reintroduction, but um, but yeah, it's it's they're rare. I mean, they've been found only in a couple places in these counties where they used to be just really common. Yeah, I think that kind of segues nicely into um, another large, <laughs> large question, open-ended <laughs> question of the uh, the program that you have been involved with at you know with, with the Park Service. Yeah. So again, there's a, I know there's gonna be a lot of different directions you could go here, but if you could just kind of give the just kind of a, a you know a rough history of how the how the how you've you know identified these problems and what you've done about them and then and we can get into the more recent stuff after that so red-legged frogs were discovered in the area so in near i'll just say near the recreation area boundary so in the same area but not it's not actually in our boundary whatever it doesn't matter um <laughs> so near the park they were found they were discovered near the park in 1999 when this park land or this privately owned property was going to be developed into basically a huge city. It was going to be the eighth largest city in Ventura County. Um, and they found red-legged frogs on the property. So that was causing trouble with um, uh, the project, you know, with, you know, people um, developing that whole place, that whole open space, uh, um, that, that caused a problem for the landowners, let's just put it that way. And um, there were other factors. There was another, there was an endangered spine flower found on the, on the property as well. And then there's a lot of community pushback too. They didn't want the eighth largest city right there. Um, so the project got stopped and actually, so now it's California owned park land. They were discovered on this property. No one knew they were there. And as soon as um, Fish and Wildlife Service found out about it. Um, there's a Ventura office um, and there's specifically a guy named Chris DeLeith and he worked with a state parks biologist who was kind of like, okay, we should try to maybe reintroduce these then. If we have this parkland, now it's parkland, it's not going to be developed. We have this population that we've been monitoring now for a few years and we they, they breed and they have egg masses and they breed and there's lots of tadpoles and there's lots of frogs in this little area, but there's nowhere for them to go. So they didn't have streams that they could go to nearby. Um, if they were in a stream that was, is a long stream, but the part that they live in is wet all year long, and then there's big dry stretches, and then there's big channelized sections that go behind neighborhoods and things like that. So there's about four kilometers of, or maybe it's two kilometers of like, of just like concrete. <laughs> it's just this concrete culvert that, that, so that's not good habitat, right? So they're kind of stuck up in the area that they are. And so Chris and this biologist, and they've been talking about it, and then sort of brought it up with all the stream biologists and they were having all these conversations that I didn't know about it because I was still at UCLA. And when I got my job, um, one of my jobs is to monitor stream breeding amphibians every year, not red-legged frogs, but all the other ones. And so they naturally came to me and they said, well, do you, what do you think about reintroducing red-legged frogs? And so I was like, well, tell me everything because I don't know anything about this. Um, we decided on a protocol based on a successful reintroduction for red-legged frogs at Pinnacles. And um, a guy named Paul Johnson, a biologist there, he had successfully reintroduced frogs from a stream part of his habitat to a reservoir after he removed all the fish. 
Hmm. What he was doing and what we basically do is take partial egg masses from the source population, which is doing great. They, all these egg masses are just sort of like hatching and there's tadpoles, but there's not enough habitat. So there's some, there's some sort of wasted reproductive effort there. Um, it feels harsh to say wasted, but really we thought if we can borrow some of this and put them in a place where maybe they'd be suitable, then they could, you know, these, um, that would be the basis of the reintroduction project. Um, and so that's what we do. We transfer egg masses to the streams where they're supposed to be released. And we put them in these tadpole rearing pens and they hatch in there and the tadpoles are in there. And we keep the tadpoles in there for a while just to protect them from predators. They grow up for a couple months, we feed them um, and we sort of monitor them a couple days a week and, um, and then we release them in the stream. And that, that general procedure has worked so far, it's been great. But the goal of it, <laughs> to get back to your big question, the goal of it is basically make more frogs <laughs> and put them in more places. It's very simple. So that's the, the um, US Fish and Wildlife Service, you know, they write these, these protection plans or these, um, what are they called? Recovery plans. Yeah. So species recovery plans where they outline, these are the things you could do to make more frogs basically and put them in more places. And so one of the things is these translocations that we are doing with egg masses. And, and the goal is, yeah, to have more California red-legged frogs in more places. Um, and so how do you do that? You release a bunch of tadpoles over and over again every year and hope that they grow, well, hope that they grow up and then you hope that they start acting like natural frogs and you hope that they start finding each other and breeding on their own and so that happened actually so that was um we found our first wild egg mass in 2017 in one of our sites and then in 2018 they bred again and that at that site and then they bred in the other site that we had done um yeah, so the procedure or the protocol basically works to get um, adult frogs and then and then um, we were lucky that the adult frogs started acting like they should and brand. <laughs> I think it's, you know, in our, our field, sometimes it's, it's hard to just kind of like, you know, you're always thinking forward and how much work you have to do, but I think it's, you know, necessary to look back and say like, we reestablished frogs. I'm not saying we, but you know, you it's and then just thinking about how successful that is because you took a source population and then you spread it out to all the different areas. Yeah. And then you did everything you needed to do to protect them, but over time they created new their own populations. That's as cool as it gets <laughs> in what we do, you know. It's as, that's as that's as good as it gets. I mean, I can't think of any other, you know, except like, you know, releasing condors into the wild and it's, it's the same thing. Yeah, it's totally, it's, it's completely amazing. It's, it's, um, yeah, every single step of the way, you know, every single step of the way, our first egg mass, how, how do you get a, a half egg mass? How, how do you actually harvest a half egg mass? It's the most nerve wracking thing. <laughs> You've got this eggs of this endangered species and you're like, okay, they said just like, tear them apart so you just and they put them in tupperware and then you drive them to the site and you put them in the thing and then they actually grow you can you know we're monitoring them and they're actually growing in their little egg you know like oh my god there's the tadpoles so then they hatch and then we're like oh my god they hatched and and then they grow and then you know every single step of the way it's been amazing and it's always been something that 
you know, I have a little skepticism for, okay, well, if they don't hatch, then let's see, we'll figure out something else. You know, we'll try to, but it's always sort of worked. And you're right. It's, it's like, it's like the most conservation, conservation plan you can do, right? These introductions, they're sort of these direct introductions. Um, it's, it's one of the most manipulative and sort of invade, you know, sort of like hands-on um, ways to save a species. But I actually, I actually like our approach because we're not really, um, we're, we're just sort of like taking the egg masses and growing them in the place where they're going to be released anyway. And those eggs are sort of growing up there. And so I kind of, I kind of like that. That was, you know, that's not our idea, um, but that's what we're doing. And I actually like that. Um, I like that a lot, but you're right. Every step of the way has really been a great, um, I won't say it's a surprise because obviously you're going to put eggs there and you're hoping they're going to hatch, you know, and not die. But since we don't really know why they became extirpated from the area, you're not really sure if they're going to survive. Um, and they have, and they do, and they, they, they're pretty resilient um, frogs. I do want to say, I, cause I kind of forgot to say this. I kind of mentioned like pulling together teams and meetings and talking to experts and stuff, but I should say that these, these, these aren't just meetings. We actually have a team that works together, you know, to help with this project. And one of our, so we have partners with state parks and coastal commission just gave us some funding and, um, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, of course, and USGS, and I'll probably forget some of my partners, but one of the main uh, partners that helps us is Santa Barbara Zoo. So Santa Barbara Zoo is like one of those places where you could actually start growing tadpoles up to be frogs in the zoo and then put froglets in a stream, which is what actually Yosemite is doing now with, with San Francisco Zoo and, and California red-legged frogs in Yosemite. But, um, and the zoo would have been totally willing to do that. But instead what the zoo is doing, because we don't have that approach, they have donated thousands of dollars worth of their time so not actual money, but like their time and their, they, their, their, their keepers, these amazing people come and they've gotten training on this species and they, and they come and they volunteer. Well, they, I mean, they're not volunteering their time. It's part of their work time, which is amazing that Santa Barbara Zoo has a program where their keepers can go in the field. Um, and they, and they come and they, and they'll go out and they'll be the ones that are feeding the tadpoles that day. And they'll be, and they come out once a week and they help us. Um, and it's a tremendous help. And so I do want to acknowledge that the project well, they're a great partner because they actually are providing this free labor for us, <laughs> but they also, it's like all these other people are contributing intellectually and money-wise and, and support-wise. Um, I just have a, this great team of people that are just really into the project and I just couldn't do it at all without them. And it's, and it's a group effort. That's awesome to hear. We, we, we hear it a lot, you know, everyone we talk to, you know, even though they're personally doing great work, they're always like, oh, we have a team of 25 organizations, you know, so it's always a team effort and it's always how it has to happen. So it's yeah. always good to hear when people are getting along and doing good work. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, I think it happens more than the other situation, you know, yeah. we all are working. I, I, so everybody that I know is trying to save the world. So we're, we are, we're trying to, you know, the goal is the same, you know, so, um, so yeah, it's, it's, a, it's great. It's really, it really is fulfilling and great to work with a team like that on a project like this. Yeah, it sounds funny to say it that way, but it's, it's true. <laughs> um, you guys are trying to save the world. I know you are. Well, yeah, we're, <laughs> we're just trying to highlight people that are doing the actual work. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
so you have this successful program where year after year you're introducing um, tadpoles and they're growing up and then they are going on and then reproducing themselves in what you think is the best habitat that can be uh, built uh, or in, built into a, a new population. And do that for a couple of years. And then I believe in 2018, the Woolsey fire happens. How was it affected and what, what were you guys able to do to kind of uh, get back on track? Okay, so now here comes the tear jerking part of the, <laughs> the story. Uh, the tear jerkers, uh, jerker part of the story. Uh, let's see, uh, we, yeah, the Woolsey fire happened. So um, we had, we have four in, introduction streams. Two of the streams are breeding on their own because they had frogs old enough. Remember, it takes them about three years to, to breed. So, um, and we kind of delayed, the two other streams we had started a couple years later. So they didn't, they weren't quite breeding age yet. They were going to be breeding age in spring of 2019. But the fall, the fire, the Woolsey fire happened in fall of 2018. So we had two populations that seemed like they were on their way to breeding on their own. And we were going to be starting to make decisions like, should we keep bringing egg masses there. And then we had two populations or two streams where we were going to be excited to look and see like, oh, this habitat's great. They're ready. They're three-year-old frogs. They're ready to breed. We've been, you know, bringing tadpoles for three or four years now and they're ready. Um, that was where we were right before the fire. The fire happened and the devastating part of that fire was how big it is. So one of the, one of the reasons that we have for reintroduction streams um, is to make more frogs in more places. But we also, those streams aren't right next to each other. They were, they're spread out. Um, so that the thought was in case there was a fire um, or I don't know, an infestation where all the trees died or something would maybe be on one part of the mountains and, and the other places would be okay. Unfortunately, the Woolsey fire was so huge, the biggest fire, two and a half times bigger than the, any fire we've ever on record in the area. Um, that it burned all the sites and it also burned the source population. So it burned every place where there are red-legged frogs in the area. Um, we went in um, right after the fire to the source population. Of course, <laughs> um, I should say I was on vacation when the fire happened and I didn't come back for two weeks and so I didn't have the full impact of the fire but um, until I gave, come back and then I did. But I, I can tell you that my heart really broke for my teams and my hard work for five years in those translocation streams where we were going and feeding tadpoles and releasing tadpoles and finding new egg masses for five years in these translocation streams and knowing that all of that was gone um, was heartbreaking. But you can't focus on that too much because we really needed to make sure that the source population was okay. And because we could start over again, if we had to, um, but we can't start over again if the source population is gonna have an issue. So obviously it burned, there's an issue. <laughs> it was very, there's literally no vegetation there. Um, the ground is completely black. The photos are crazy. Um, you know, fires here, they just burn really hot and they burn all the way to the ground and it's just black. And so the source population I think I said this before, but it's a, it's a small part, of, it's a small area and it's about 300 meters of stream and there's about 10 really deep, nice pools. And that's where they like, they're, they're terrestrial, you know, they kind of come and go, but they like those pools and that's what they need to breed. 
Um, so it was totally black and all the willows had, had everything was just gone veg wise, but there were still the pools there. So we were wondering, you know, we're not every single frog could have died in this fire. Um, and the area where they, the source population is, has burned multiple times. I mean, I think it burned 15 years ago too. Like it's, it's burning multiple times. So we had a pretty good idea that the frogs would survive. Um, but you just, you know, we needed to make sure. So, um, my boss, and then when I got back from my vacation, I went in there several times um, right after the fire. We went out at night, they're nocturnal, and so the best way to see them is to go out at night with flashlights and, and count them. Um, and we went out the first night, it was a couple weeks after the fire, like I said, when I got back, and we found like something like 89 frogs or something, just like out in the black. <laughs> on the black landscape and we're like okay well they're alive um and we went out like the following week and there was like 90 frogs or something so we're like okay we're their frogs are here they're walking around it's been like maybe a month after the fire they're still here they some of them were pretty skinny looking um that was the worry is that um you know they eat the terrestrial insects which sort of you know that's you know you need plants for insects to be there um and so I was worried about, so then I was like, okay, well, there's adults there. That's fine. I kind of expected that, but it's good to see. Then I was like, well, they're not going to breed. Probably they're going to be all too skinny. You know, they're going to have to survive the winter time. And it started raining immediately and the vegetation started coming back. And so actually in 2019 in the spring, that population bred like crazy. They did great. We had tons of egg masses. It was awesome. Um, so that kind of go, shows you the resilience of the species but it shows that the resilience of that area as well, because that area is sort of rolling hills and there's not a lot of um, mud that could come off of, this, of the hillsides. So part of the problem with the fire it, for stream work is that the, the fire kills all the veg, or not kills it, but it, it burns all the biomass off. And then if it starts raining, all of that ash and mud comes and, and flows water flows downhill and it goes right into your stream. So we had rain, quite a bit of rain after the fire. And the only thing that sort of, we think that this sort of saves that area and this may be actually why the frogs have survived there and they've survived nowhere else in, in our area is that there's these big pools. It's not high gradient. It can burn. The water's permanent. Nobody's in there messing with them and they're just allowed to sort of uh, breed in there. So we had, when we had runoff, we had a little bit of sedimentation. There was a little bit of like sedimentation that would fill up the pools, but within a couple of rainstorms that was all gone. And so the pools looked fine. They looked like what the frogs were used to or you know what they'd always looked like for years and years and years. So um, that population seemed to be doing fine. Our other places were not so lucky. So all of the other four streams are in really high gradient steep canyons and complete burns to the, I mean, the canyons are, were just completely, like the, the fire burned really hot through a couple of those places. So what happened with the rain was it, it so all the veg was gone too. So that the vegetation holds the soil up. Um, now there's no vegetation. So all this, all the soil comes down and it just basically filled in every pool. So these beautiful breeding pools for the frogs where I had surveyed for years and years before and said, oh, this is great habitat. The frogs are gonna love it in here. Now it does not look like good red-legged frog habitat at all. And 
I feel bad for the frogs that are, <laughs> that are sort of stuck there because um, because they don't have any breeding pools. I mean, we have pools that were that were waist deep that we had the pens in, you know, the tadpole rearing pens and waist deep, multiple pools, and they're just they're, they're a shallow trickle of water now. Um, so that's the bad news. The bad news is three of the four of those places. Now it's been about a year and a half since the fire are not, or almost two years, right? And it's not, they are not recovered. They're not recovered. Um, three of the four look terrible. Those three have adult frogs in them though. So there were frogs that survived. We went and did surveys and we found about half this, half the number of adults that we found the year before, but they were still there. So there's adults still there, um, but we can't put tadpoles or eggs there. There's nowhere to put them for the last two years. And, and the adults did not breed in there. They can't find habitat either. So they're there, but they can't, um, they can't, you know, become a population really. It's just a few frogs there. Um, so what we're hoping in those streams is that, that the rains will come and, and they'll survive long enough to the, for the pools to come back. Cause the pools do come back when they get, when they, when they get scoured out, but it can take years. And so, um, you know, pray that this year is not a drought year because the last two years has been good for rain. Now there's more vegetation too. So when it rains, uh, all this sediment won't come down as much sediment won't come down, but still we'll still have some sedimentation issues for years to come. But um, hopefully those frogs can hang on. Yeah, on a, on a personal note, the it's good to hear about the source population because I was there, I think I escorted you and your team that first day. You did. And it yes. was, it was like, we, you know, it, we, we've seen a couple of plops, but like, we were like, well, we don't know, because it was the middle of the day. And you're like, we're gonna have to come back later. And then I left because, you know, end of two weeks. And so it's really good to, you know, know that the whole, <laughs> the whole project isn't done because of one fire. Um, yeah. Well, but. and the good news really is that the one, one place, it's interesting, the fire burned really spotty through this one canyon. And it's actually our healthiest canyon where we found our first wild egg mass. And so that the, those frogs are doing really well and there's a lot of frogs in there. Um, the fire burned around where the frogs were in that case. Very weird. I don't know why that happened. Um, so there was less sedimentation. It burned up, up in the watershed. So there was some sedimentation, but it wasn't as much. And so those frogs, they didn't breed as much in 2019. They were still stressed and there wasn't a lot, you know, the water was, was a little shallower, but with the rains, they bred just as much as they did the, in 2018, in 2020. So in 2020, they bred fine and there's big adults there and they're all doing fine. So that reintroduction site, that we could consider, I mean, I hesitate to say it, but I, I think it's a success. I think those guys are there, there's a population, they're breeding, and we haven't done anything there for two years. For us, the good news is that you're there. <laughs> um, so what is the, what's the more, what's the, when you're looking short term into the future, what are your, your goals and your plans to kind of get um, either these sites or new sites back on track and for the, the, the species, excuse me? Yeah. Um, God, that's a good question. Isn't 2020 is just like a lot, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, so yeah, we, for some pandemic reasons, but, but mostly for, for habitat reasons, we didn't do a translocation this year. You know, I mean, we, we did, we, we looked at the source population, made sure they were breeding, made sure they were fine. They were, they're breeding still. We have eggs. If, 
we could have moved eggs, but we have really nowhere to put them. So it's interesting you bring up new sites. I would like to explore that. We have uh, one site in the mountains that from the very beginning, we wanted to do a reintroduction there. The landowners, it was not a private landowner, but it was a land um, conservation agency. They did not want us to put red-legged frogs there. And so we never had an agreement with them and we never had sort of any cooperation with them. I would like to revisit that because their site didn't burn. <laughs> if we had put them there a long time ago, they would still be there. And it's great habitat. It's really great habitat. It's just sort of controversial. So I, I need to sort of be like political and, and maybe maybe explore that a little bit more. But yeah, I really, there's really nothing we can do about the other sites. So, um, you know, people ask if you can dig out pools and things like that. We actually tried that in 2018 or 2019 in the summer we we try we dug out some pools just thinking okay well maybe there'll be some habitat for juvenile frogs and um you know there was a pool there it wasn't very big it's a lot of work it does you can't you can't get a very deep pool you can't get any equip heavy equipment in these canyons and it's just too way too rugged so um there are places where where um people have done that where after a fire they'll go in with a with a big machine or you know so whatever those things are called anyway um something to dig big ponds and they'll be okay here's streams over here and then there's a big like you know field or something right next to the stream so let's dig a pond over here and it'll naturally fill with water and the frogs have used it not in our area but this is in another area that um someone did this about 20 years ago and it worked the frogs went to those ponds and that kind of saved them while the stream regenerated now the stream's fine the ponds are kind of still there but they they really mostly use the stream um we just don't have an area like that where you can, it's re, these really, really narrow canyons and there's nowhere to sort of get in there and dig them. So there's really, there's really, it's really, I feel helpless. There's really nothing we can do to restore the stream. And people have, people have offered, like, we have money, Katie, if you can figure out how we can <laughs> fix the streams, we, we will help you with anything. And I really, it's just not, we just can't. So you, because you, if you dig out pools, so what we did is in 2019, we dug out some pools and in first rain, they just filled right back in. So Ugh. it's not ever going to be, yeah. And we knew that was going to happen, but you know, we made them specific, specifically for, um, for like a winter refugia, but it's just not, we need them to breed, you know, that's what we want them to do. So we can't create breeding habitat. Um, we can just hope that it recovers soon. And in other areas, fires the streams have recovered and within like five years of a fire so and and that one of the places it was even drought and so it sort of recovered after maybe like six or seven years so maybe this is only two years after the fire maybe one or two more years um but to know that the source population is there we can we can start over if we have to it's not all lost yes it's not all lost <laughs> thankfully right you know Again, like I said, our, our good news story is the fact that you guys are there and that you have that team and you have people that are like, if you can find a way for we, us to put our money, we'll, we'll pay for it. And that is honestly the biggest issue for a lot of programs is they're just trying to get people yeah. involved. So the fact that you yeah. have that is, you know, is, uh, gives, gives you hope um, for, you know, if, we can, if, they, if the population can survive the next few years. Um, yeah. So I guess that kind of transitions into like the, the last thing that we kind of like to talk about um and it we, we based this off of um, the michael Soule quote where 
he was asked if he's optimistic or pessimistic and he said he likes to consider himself possibilistic or he likes he likes possibilism where you know if you have a team like you have and you you have you know all the phds and all the graduate degrees and all these people going i have money i'll give it to it if you have all that like mm -hmm. you can kind of accomplish anything and so i guess with that said and you know in your experience what um what what gives you hope what gives you inspiration? What keeps you up getting up in the morning to do this? I would say go to work, but you're just probably changing rooms now. <laughs> yeah, I'm in my guest room right now. Yeah. That's my office now. Um, I tell you, my, my motivation is definitely taking a hit this year. Um, actually, last year too, since the fire, really. Um, the fire, even though I can be optimistic now, way more optimistic now, you know, six months after the fire than I was a couple weeks after the fire, let's say. We know, we know a lot more now. That always helps. Um, we know that there's frogs in all the places still. Um, that gives me hope. <laughs> that makes me motivated to keep going. I have a responsibility. I and my team put those frogs there and I have a responsibility to do as much as I can, which is not a lot, but as, as much as I can to make sure that, that um, they survive. So that means, that means keeping, we have to go in there and we have to survey, we have to make sure that there's not like new impacts from hikers or weird things being dumped in the streams. And so we have to sort of keep monitoring them. We have to go out at night, we have to monitor them. We have to, we wanna count them. We wanna make sure that they're healthy. We wanna swab them for chytrid. We wanna make sure, um, that's one of the things I just got some money for um, to do a study where we can swab the frogs for, for chytrid and really get an idea of how, how much of the fungus we have here and how and what strains and, and, and what loads the frogs have, which I think will be a helpful piece of the puzzle to know for, for going to the future. I mean, I'm, I'm motivated by, yeah, my, I feel like it's my responsibility to keep the project going and <laughs> the project probably wouldn't have ha I mean, I, I did this, you know, I have to keep it going. Like I, I, I feel a responsibility to the project. So, so yes, daily motivation can be hard right now and um, not being able to see or meet with any of my colleagues in person and you know interns or biotechs i had to let you know my interns left and they, i can't rehire anybody because i can't be with them to train them and so um you know santa barbara zoo volunteers they're out there and they they want you know these great people they want to help but i'm like there's really we don't we can't do anything come out with us at night when we go out you know but there's no tad tadpoles to feed so but i feel a responsibility to keep the project going and i that that is what's motivating me at the moment i think it starts really young i think you have to be inspired um, and passionate. I can't really, I guess I, I don't know. For me, it started by watching, um, like documentaries with my dad, you know, like Marine, like Jacques Cousteau and just like very, I mean, I'm old. So we, that used to be on TV, like when I was young. Um, and, and, you know, we would, and it was just fascinating to me. And then, you know, moving to San Diego when I was 11 from Detroit and, and having like, you know, the beach there and, thinking about all the things that were living in the ocean and and it's just and I was not you know it wasn't necessarily a great like student I didn't know what I was going to do and all that like didn't know about going to college and where I was going to do and um, these interns that I have now though that come through it's a very different 
time and I just grew up in a different family they they have these families that are encouraging them to do these things and it just feel it it's they're inspired by the animals that they love or they're you know and because uh, I get a bunch of people that are interested in animals not not trees necessarily but you know that's some people's things um you know, we had one intern that came through, then her thing is like parasites. Like that's what she's into, dead stuff and parasites. You know, that's just, she's just into it. Um, but yeah, I think you get inspired as a young person. It has to start young and you have to have some kind of incredible sense of empathy. And I actually think that there's like a sense of like morality and justice that we should be doing this, that not everything's about you. It's, it's not about you, it's about us, it's about the whole planet. And now more than ever, conservation and conservationists, as you say, are increasingly worried about um, you know, climate change, which is the biggest issue facing us. And the conservation movement isn't that old. I mean, 100 years? And, and it's not that old and it's, and it, and so, but what you're getting is you're just getting these issues are getting bigger and bigger and the issues are higher and higher stakes and kids are growing up knowing about that. And I think they, they are growing up caring about it. You're either one, you know, I feel like you either care about it or there are people who just want to, you know, what's in it for me type of thing. So that's why I say it's like a sense of empathy and, and morality and justice of what, what's right, doing what's right. Let's, let's not ruin this for everyone, kind of a thing. We want to say thank you again to Katie Delaney for speaking with us and for all the hard work she does for this and other local species. Host for your episode is Austin Parker, and producers for this episode are Austin and Taylor Parker. The music was provided by A Picture Book. You can find all of our podcasts at pelicanus.org, on YouTube, as well as the podcast provider of your choice. If you don't mind, please like and subscribe to our page. And thank you again for tuning in. We'll talk to you next time.